Amen. Beautiful, beautiful song this morning. Beautiful reminder. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Probably doesn't surprise too many, since I already said it was Pentecost Sunday. Uh, We're going to speak a little bit about Pentecost together. I think Acts chapter 2 is probably, uh, within our circles, probably one of the most um, discussed um, passages of Scripture. Um, many, many uh, people have their own opinions about what happened that day. And... Uh, What I have found is that where you stand on a lot of uh, the theology of Acts chapter 2 depends on what you emphasize and what you de-emphasize. The things that you find to be important in this passage and the things that you don't find to be important. And uh, I wish, I wish this, uh, this morning I could read the entirety of the chapter, um, but it is 47 um, 47 verses long, and uh, so we're, we're not going to take you through all of those verses. Well, I probably preached on most of them, but um, we, will, we will try to keep it a little shorter. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Amen. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We're going to do some jumping around, so you'll forgive me if you would, but... And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were dwelling in Jerusalem Excuse me. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now I want to skip down to verse 12. Those verses I'm missing, skipping are all the kind of people that were there. Verse 12, it says, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing It is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy." Let's jump all the way to verse 42. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I want to speak to us on a personal Pentecost. A personal Pentecost. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're thankful, Lord, that this is not just a tale of of 2,000 years ago, but this is a, a testimony of your saints down through the ages. And we ask this morning that you would help us to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us not to add to confusion, but Lord, help us to add to clarity. Lord, be with us. Anoint these lips one more time. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1926, a wealthy lawyer by the name of Charles Miller passed away in Toronto. He had no heir, and so uh, I suppose he was just a little bit ornery. You don't know anybody that's a little ornery, do you? Well, he, he had this idea he, he said that there would be one last Hurrah, you know, one last sign of honoriness to remember him by. And so when his will was read, he decided that he was going to just, you know, have a little fun. And so he, uh, he owned some horse, uh, uh, horse track shares. And so he bequeathed those to two men who campaigned hard against horse racing and betting. And so they got shares in, in the horse track. The, the lawyer Miller also happened to have shares in, in a uh, Catholic uh, brewing company. And so uh, he left every minister, uh, Protestant minister in Toronto shares in this brewery for the, that the Catholics owned. He's just a little ornery. But what he did... His biggest, his biggest honoriness was this. He set forth in his will that a large sum of money would be given to the woman who birthed the most children in the 10 years following his death. It's 1926. The Great Depression is just beginning. Resources are short, and money is hard to come by. And if you are the lucky woman to have the most children in these 10 years, you can become very wealthy. And so, in 1936, 10 years after Miller's death, three proud mothers with their, each of their own nine beautiful children, came to collect $125,000 apiece. 
Not bad in 1936 uh, funds. Not bad today, really. Of course, you had nine children to get it. Miller was ornery, and he left behind a legacy of being ornery. All those ministers, for the rest of their lives, they would remember the time they inherited these funds, these, these brewery. <laughs> I mean, really, what would I do with that? Do you sell those? Do you keep them? What do you do? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is leaving the church. He's leaving his disciples. And he's promised them an inheritance. He's promised them something special after he's gone. And apparently, Jesus is not quite as ornery as Charles Miller. And I'm, kind of, I'm thankful for that. Because he left us the Holy Spirit. And what a great gift. What a great gift. You know, I think a lot about holiness. And I, you know, one of the things that, that gets me is, this, is that it seems to be the sticking point of really a lot of confusion within the church. I have, unfortunately, had evangelists come and speak on holiness and preach things that were theologically wrong. And I'm sitting in my pew and I'm wanting to stand up and shout, that's not right, but knowing that the Bible also says it's not right to be contentious in church. And I'm not sure what to always do when that happens. I usually don't have them back. But by then, the damage is done. And then, what? And usually in a month or two, I try to preach it correctly and try to correct the wrong that was done. And, and then we've got more confusion that we're trying to sort through. I'm trying to do it in such a way that not to dishonor the person that's, that's not been correct in their theology. And, and it becomes difficult. It becomes a challenge. The church has historically struggled with this. And I don't understand why Satan has made this the battleground. It seems to me that salvation would be the battleground area. But largely, the church agrees on salvation. I mean, there's some, there's some sticking points. There's some minor things, and, and there's some that believe you can't be saved until after you're baptized. Like, the baptism is that process in which you're, you're saved. And, and, and there are some sticking points. I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't. But, but basically, the church agrees that you, you have to be saved. The details are, are a little fuzzy, but most, mostly we agree on that. But when it comes to holiness, we have whole denominations that, that basically say it's nonsense, it's not biblical. 
And then when you read the biographies of their great missionaries and their great preachers, you find that they have this time of where they got sanctified, although they call it something else. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Baptist ministers, in their biographies, write out, you can see it, and it's like, they just got sanctified. They call it a deeper walk. When I first moved here, I had the privilege of being interviewed by the reporter. I don't remember her name, but she's the daughter of the, the preacher down the road. And uh, she was talking to me, and she didn't understand holiness, and so I was explaining it to her. And I, and I, I, asked, I, I told her, I said, you go to a saint of God, and, and you ask him about, about this, this time, this time of crisis where they have a deeper walk with the Lord. I said, the saint that you have the most confidence in in your church has gotten sanctified. And she goes, I already know who you're talking about, and I know what their story. Not knowing the terminology, not knowing all the details, walking in the light, but also walking in ignorance, they walk right into it. And yet, it seems like holiness is a struggle. And I wonder if it, you feel that way sometimes. I wonder when we read things about Pentecost, and, and uh, I wonder if, if, if you feel like, wow, this just seems so difficult to understand. And I've heard a lot of preaching, and I've heard preaching that is clearly wrong, and, and, and then I've heard other preaching that I'm not sure if it's right or not, and, and it just seems like there's so much confusion around, around it. I wonder, do you know what you mean when you say that you're sanctified? Do you point back to that moment of your own personal Pentecost where you felt the Holy Spirit come, but if I were to ask how you know you're still sanctified, if you could answer that, or do you have to, and I'm just being honored here a little bit, or are you once sanctified, always sanctified? You point back to the time it happened, but, the, but you're not sure if the evidences of it being up to date are still there. You see, this is the struggle, I think, for many in the holiness movement, is that holiness is just really, really complicated because Satan has muddied the waters. And because good people, godly people, people who fell in love with God and, and, and got sanctified, they had their own personal Pentecost, They made some errors because they were preaching from their own experience rather than preaching the Word of God. And I would like to be critical of them, I think, but I can't be because John Wesley struggled with this himself. And there, were there was a time he came and said, I was preaching it too hard. I was preaching it too high. And it happens because John Wesley had a mother who was extremely disciplined and she taught John and Charles to be extremely disciplined. They had a lot of self-discipline and so they understood self-discipline 
to be part of holiness. And if you weren't as self-disciplined as what he was, he wasn't sure whether you had it or not. But not all of us have that background. Not all of us have that personality. And so even at John Wesley's day, and by the way, that's not the birth of the Holiness Movement. The Holiness Movement was born on Pentecost. There have always been people who believe in holiness throughout history. John Wesley is the one that brought it back after years of being neglected. And so what now? What now? How do we move forward as holiness folk? How do we know that we have it? How do we know that we've ever experienced it? How do we know whether we've ever had a personal Pentecost? How do we testify to something if we don't know? And there's a lot of mistakes along the way. Some of the mistakes are, are, are pretty common, and we know that one is that some people think they got sanctified when they had an emotional experience during prayer. That's a common one. Or some people, they don't think they got it because they didn't get the emotional experience. Is love an emotion or is it an act of the will? It's both. It's both. And you know what's difficult is when we talk about love and we realize that it's an act of the will and we realize that it's an emotion, if one of those is missing, we think we are not in love. But that's not the case. Emotion can go by the wayside and you can, you can have an act of the will. You can choose to love in spite of the situation, in spite of the way that they're treating you. You can, you can be high on emotion. You can, you can have all emotion and, and no act of the will. There's never been a challenge. There's never been a difficulty. And we call it puppy love. We kind of mock it a little bit especially when our young people fall into this thing. We're like, just you wait. Man, I tell you what, when they start squeezing the toothpaste from the middle, because that's the all-time biggest problem in the whole world. I never did understand that. Get your own tube of toothpaste if it's that important. It's a cheap fix. But you face those, that first major bump and all of a sudden, then love gets put to the test and all those wonderful love feelings kind of go away and it becomes an act of the will. And then we call that real love. But is it? Is it? It really, you hope that most of the time you experience both. If your marriage is down to nothing but an act of the will, you all need a date, a second honeymoon, or something. 
fired up. It's both. It's both. It's holiness. What is it? See, it's, love is confusing, then holiness is really confusing, right? Because you know what holiness is? It's divine love. It's perfect love. It's, it is love. John Wesley, and, and this isn't a perfect quote, but he says if you're seeking for anything but more love, you're seeking for the wrong thing. Let's, let's see what God has to say about all this and, and all of our confusion. As we look through in, our, in this passage, what are some things that, that we notice? And one of the things that leapt out to me at the very beginning that God says that holiness is, at least in the description to me, it, is that it is joy. It is joy. He said, where did you get that? Well, I mean, these, these, these people, these 120, are hanging out in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes, and the people uh, run out, and, and they're now uh, out on the street. They're, they're full of, 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 of the Holy Spirit. They've, they've got flames of fire on their head, but nobody's talking about that. I don't know if they can't see it or not. I've never seen anybody with flames of fire on their head. I don't think that's part of holiness. Then they talk in, in unknown languages and people, so the languages they don't know, but the people here in their own language, and some people have tried to make that out as proof that you've been sanctified, but the problem with that is, is that tongues can be faked. And the Holy Spirit is not in the business of being counterfeited. Throughout human history, the Greeks had these uh, women, these temple women, that they would make high. They would, they would burn some stuff that would, that would make these women high. They would get high, and the temple priest would listen to her babble in her unknown language, and then the priest would say what the prophetess has spoken. He would interpret for them, of course, whatever he wanted to be said, of course, is whatever he made it to be. It was fate. And throughout history, even church history, there have been cult leaders, people who have broken from the church, and their evidence of that they have divine inspiration has been babbling in an unknown tongue. If God intended this to be evidence that a one was sanctified, I would uh, propose to you that God would not pick something that anyone can fake. Do you believe in tongues, preacher? I do believe in tongues. I believe that there are some people that God has gifted with the ability to learn languages easily. Some people can pick up languages. They know five, six, seven languages. I believe my brother probably has this gift. This, he speaks, I don't know how fluent he is because he, he just dabbles and fools around. He never really sits down to study it. But I know he, he can speak four, about four or five languages, parts of them. And if he just sit down and be serious about it, he probably could be fluent in several languages. He just has a gift for that. 
Me? I'm happy that I can speak English well enough to be understood. <laughs> and even then, some of you probably wonder. But I also believe there have been times throughout history when it's been required, when it's been necessary, that God in his providence has allowed a person to speak what they thought was their own language and, and the other person heard in their own language. I've heard tell of, of people that have come up to the pastor after the message. This has never happened to me, but, but I, I've heard preachers that have said this has happened to them, where they've preached a message and a couple has come up to them and said, you preached just what we needed to hear, and they said what he said, and he said, I never said anything like that. The sermon wasn't anywhere near that. I said nothing like that, but both the husband and the wife confirmed they heard the preacher say those words. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It do believe in tongues. But I don't believe it's the evidence of Pentecost. But what I do believe, one of the evidence of Pentecost is joy. And how do you, I know? Because here they show up and they're, they're, they're there in front of all the people and they're speaking. And what do the people say? They say, these people have so much joy, they must be drunk. Look at their faces. Look at them carry on. It, they have got to be drunk. They're having such a good time. And we all know you can't have a good time unless you're drunk. Just ask the world. I mean, you can, you can turn down just about anything, but if you're not into drinking, man, people in the world just think there's something wrong with you. You don't drink? How do you have fun? It's almost always the question they ask. How can you have fun? Like alcohol is, is the, the prerequisite for fun. And yet here they are. They're celebrating. They have the Holy Spirit. They've been sanctified. And what's going on? The people are saying, look at these people. They are people of joy. Look at their faces. Look at their behavior. Listen to the words they're saying. This is... Wow! It's only 9 a.m. And they're having a great time. I read the story of three prospectors who had, were in the, in the gold rush and they were up in the mountains or whatever they were doing and they found a vein of gold. Well, the three of them said, you know what we got to do is we got to be real careful that we don't say anything. To anybody. Because if anybody finds out, we're going to have a lot of trouble. There's going to be people here. There's going to be problems. So the three of them all said they weren't going to say a word. And they all went into town. And they bought their supplies. They, bought their, they did their things in town. And as they were leaving town, not a one of them, not a one of them spoke a word about the gold they found. But the town followed them out because of the looks on their faces, everyone knew they'd found gold. And it couldn't be helped. They couldn't change the way they looked. There was a motivational speaker who was, who was asked some time ago, he said, what is the hardest speech you've ever been asked to give? And he said, oh, that one's easy. 
He said, I was asked to speak to a group of undertakers on the topic of how to look sad on a $20,000 funeral. The undertaker's pretty happy about the, the windfall, and it's hard not to let his face show it. And I wonder, how do we, how do we look to the world? We're, we're holiness folks. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and we are supposed to be people that the world thinks we are drunk on the Spirit. That we have joy. And it should shine through in all that we do and all that we say. Some time ago, uh, a little boy was in church and he had one of those infectious smiles. And of course he sat up towards the front. Probably it was the preacher's kid. But he turns around and He's smiling at the people behind him, and the people can't help it. They have to smile back. Don't you love those infectious smiles? And the mother looks over, sees what's going on, and was embarrassed, disrupting the service, and so she goes and she twists his ear. He starts sniffling and crying, and she goes, that's better. (laughs) There seems to be this belief that we're supposed to be sad and somber and miserable in church. Or maybe other places too. Folks, nothing should be further from the truth. Nothing should be further. Now listen, I don't believe in this artificial jazz it up you know, a party every Sunday, stage crew, people jumping up and down, have, acting silly for the sake of trying to pretend like they're joyous. I'm talking about a real, authentic joy that's in the heart. And in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of sorrow, it still stays true. In the midst of illness, in the midst of disappointments, in the midst of heartaches and dreams that are, are broken, it stays true. We're talking about joy unspeakable and full of glory. Can we sing that song? Can we, can we relish that experience? Or is that something that's foreign to us? These people, these 120 are coming down and they've got joy in their heart. How can they be joyous? Jesus is gone. How can they be joyous? They're they're not being set up, uh, uh, having an earthly kingdom set up like they've spent the last three and a half years hoping for. How can they have joy when they... uh, They've been through so much and, and, and all the sorrow and, and seeing Jesus crucified. And, and all, how can they have joy? In them? They have joy because when the Holy Spirit comes, He fills us with joy. He fills us with joy. 
I'm not saying that you don't cry. I'm not saying you don't have sadness. I'm not saying that you don't go through dark times. I'm not trying to suggest that at all. I'm not trying to tell you that if you're not on cloud nine that you're not sanctified. That is not it at all. What I'm trying to help us to understand is that there's something that is steady and true in the heart of the sanctified person. That in the midst of all the sorrows, in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of saying our goodbyes to our loved ones, in the midst of all of of the suffering that is inherent to living this life, that there's something inside that the joy bells still ring. Holiness. Holiness is joy. And And if you hear a holiness preacher preaching that holiness is not joy he doesn't have it he doesn't understand it some preachers preach that holiness you don't have any emotions at all that people can call you names and it won't affect you one bit people can can backstab you and run you down and it won't bother you a bit if you're sanctified folks that's that's not what I read here. What I read here is even in spite of that, there's joy in your heart. That even though those words hurt and even though those actions uh, discourage, there's nothing but love and joy in our hearts. We don't want to get revenge. We're not trying to run them down. We're not trying to tear them down. We're not going to act in the same way they acted towards us. We're going to live as people of love and joy. That's what a sanctified heart is. Not someone who has no emotions and is a robot. If holiness was to become a robot, honestly, I don't, I don't see how, that's, how, the, how anyone can come to that. Even God is described as having emotions. It makes no sense to me how people can come and and, and try to preach that they have no emotions. My guess is this, is their experiences, they don't have many emotions. That's just the way they are. Some people are born with more emotions than others. There's some people I know, I know an individual right now, they they have about two or three emotions. That's all they experience. That's all they have. They don't experience emotions like most of us here probably do. And they've told me, they said, I just don't feel that emotion. I just don't, I just don't know that emotion. I just don't experience it. It's not about emotions. It's not about having many or having few. It's about knowing that the Holy Spirit resides in your heart and that brings joy. Brings joy. Holiness is, enhances joy, but holiness is also power. Jesus said that after this, you shall receive power. Do you know everybody likes power? The world is, is motivated by money and power, and probably sex. Between the three of those, it rules the world. That's Satan's three big things. And I've heard so many people say, I just want the power. I want the power of, of Acts. I want the power of Pentecost. And what they mean by that is they want to be able to heal people. 
well, that'd be cool. I'd like to heal people. I don't like to see people suffer and people to, to, to go through uh, aches and pains. I, I, I don't like that. that. Yeah, that'd be neat. Is that what it is? I mean, we will find in just, just a little bit, just a few verses after this, we're going to find a, the, a man who's, who can't walk that's going to be uh, raised up and be able to run. Is that what this is? Is the power uh, to heal? Many signs and wonders are done. I know, maybe it's, it's the power to, to, you know, influence people and get people to do what you want them to do. Or maybe it's the power to speak in an unknown tongue. Or maybe it's the power for this or that or the other thing. And everyone is wrapped up in this power. What is this power? Jesus said, Jesus said that you'll receive power. But what did he say it was for? So that we could be witnesses for him. Ye shall be my witnesses. See, this is not power to, to make people do what you want them to do. This isn't power that gets you fame and fortune. And I'm sorry for all those televangelists and all those that, that, that knock people over and carry on and make a big show. That is not Pentecost. That's showmanship. I'm not saying that God can't help people to have those kind of abilities. I'm not saying the gift of healing isn't real. I'm not saying that. But what I'm trying to help us to understand is that's not the purpose of Pentecost. The purpose of Pentecost is to drive out that which keeps us from being able to tell the world that we are a Christian. Perfect love casts out fear. And here, here's Peter. Just a few weeks before, he's asked by a little maid, a little girl, if he's a follower of Jesus, and he swears up and down he's not. And now he stands in front of thousands of people and boldly proclaims that they've crucified their Messiah. Say, what? I think that's what the, how the young people say it. What? Peter, you're, you're, you're supposed to be a, a wimp when it comes to testifying to who Christ is. I mean, you were scared at the fire, remember? Now you're going to stand up in front of thousands of people. And, and, and this, you denied being a follower, and now you're pointing the finger of accusation and saying, you crucified the Messiah. I mean, hello, Peter. What's happened? What has happened? See, you receive power to be a witness. You receive power to be a witness. Now listen, I understand that some are more timid than others. I understand that some of you, no matter what you got, unless the Holy Spirit performs some kind of major miracle, Getting up in front of five people, much less 5,000, is not, I mean, it would just be miserable. It's hard to get people to even do prayer meeting around here. The gift of timidity just runs deep when it comes to standing in front of people. They say it's the number one phobia in the world. 
if you're a public speaking. So I understand. I understand that not all of us are going to be able to get up in front and teach a Sunday school class or, or to be able to do a prayer meeting or, or to be able to preach a sermon. I understand that. And I'm not saying you're not sanctified just because you can't do something like that. But the question is, is can you sit across the table from a friend and tell them about Jesus? Can uh, someone who's hurting and they come to speak to you about their pain, can you tell them about the Lord? Or are you unable to share on that one-on-one? -on -one? I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying you don't feel a sense of, of fear or a sense of, of uh, uh, you know, oh, I, oh I, I hope this goes well. I'm not saying you don't have that. I, it's inherent. You're risking something. You're risking the relationship. You're risking something when you bring up Christ. When you tell that person that the reason that they're in the mess they're in is because they don't know Jesus. Hopefully you say it a little nicer than that. You're risking something. What if I mess up? Well, the fact is, is you've messed up if you haven't started. You, if, they, if you never tell them, even if you don't tell them poorly, you still haven't told them. And the thing that is true is that the more we do it poorly, the better we get at it until eventually we can do a passable job. And maybe do an incredible job. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just takes over and you leave the place and you wonder what in the world just happened. I, 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 how did I know to say those words? I, 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 don't, I don't know what happened there. The Holy Spirit just took over. The Holy Spirit was in that place. You see, Pentecost is about power, but it isn't power to show off. It's the power to serve. Pentecost is not the power to, uh, to, to, to make a name for yourself. It's a, the power to lift up the name of Christ. And every sanctified heart has the desire to lift up Christ. Every sanctified heart wants to lift up the name of Christ. If you have your personal Pentecost, you'll have power. The power to witness. Doesn't mean you won't have fear. Doesn't mean it won't be difficult. Doesn't mean that it's that getting started is going to be easy. It just means that you're going to want to do it and you will do it because you've got the power to do so now. It's why our missionaries, all the Petersons and, and the Shapers can leave the comforts of home and go to places where they don't have the, the same privileges and benefits that we have. My friends, Stephen and Keisha Mills, they're... They've been serving in, in uh, Manaus, Brazil for years, and, and God has led them to go up the Amazon River and to live very much like the native people do so that they can show them that they identify with him in order to win them to Christ. I don't want to live like a native on the Amazon River. 
I'll just be honest with you. I like the comforts of America. And you do too. And that's okay. But we don't like them more than we like the presence of the Holy Spirit in our heart. And if he calls us to go, we'll go. And if we... You know, the snakes and the spiders and all the reasons that that can keep us, that would say, oh, I'm so glad God didn't call me there. God puts something in the heart of the hills that he calls, that he just enables them to have the power to do it. I must have got a late start. I'm going to blame it on that. God tells us, he shows us that, that our personal Pentecost is one of joy and it's one of power. But most of all, it's one of love. What happens to the people? They start caring. And here's the hard part. Most of us think that the sanctified person falls in love with God, that God becomes the number one thing. And that's true. But here's the part that we cannot, we must not forget. Is that it's impossible to love God without loving those around us. It's impossible. You cannot, John tells us clearly, you can't say you love God and hate your neighbor. You can't do it. I can prove this scripturally if you need me to, but for the brevity's sake, I won't. You can't say you love God and be apathetic towards your neighbor. It's easy to say, I don't hate my neighbor, but it's a whole other thing to say, I actually care about my neighbor. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus saying that he's going to separate the sheep and the goats by those that visited in prison and, and, and clothed the naked and, and gave... I mean, I can just, folks, I can just go on and on and on about this. It's not just hate. It's also apathetic to our neighbor. I could preach a whole sermon on this. Have. I don't remember if it's here, but I have. We cannot... Love God and hate or be apathetic to our neighbor. We must love them. I don't have it memorized, but I've been bothered by a, a verse in Proverbs that says, do not turn away a man when you have it in your hand. Jeff shared with us a scripture from James about saying, you know, we, you be comforted in your nakedness, be comforted in your thirst and your hunger, and we do nothing about it. We, we really care. We say we care. Do you know what amazes me? Is that we're not serious about this part. And this is where we have our, our greatest failing.
We're known as people who shoot our wounded. That's what they, that's what they say. If a person stumbles, if a person falls, we're like hyenas and go ahead and attack them. Chickens and peck them to death. And we're holiness folk. And that's not what Pentecost was about. They sold and gave as, as such as had need. You have need of a hand up. Brother, I, let me be the, God's hand extended. Let me pull you up. That's what we're supposed to be. But instead, we're quick to kick them when they're down. We're, we're supposed to be the people who, who are pro-life. And, and the, and the, and the pro-choice people say, well, you don't care. Show your evidence. Prove that you love people. Prove that you're pro-life after they're born. What would you say to the person that asked you, what have you done for the people that are already born to prove that you're pro-life? What have you personally done? I know here that we've had some that have done foster care and, and other things. I'm not, listen, I'm just trying to help us to understand that the world is not impressed by us saying we love them they're not impressed by us putting the words out there. As Dean likes to say, words are cheap. These disciples, these people that were in Pentecost, they fell so in love with people that they sold what they had in order to meet people's needs. Go all the way back to the first couple verses. Where, what happens? How did they get sanctified? It says it doesn't happen. The Pentecost didn't happen until they got in one accord, until they got into unity. I have this kind of this picture. Maybe I'm wrong about this. You forgive me for using my imagination. But it seems to me that you've got 120 people stuck in a room together with no air conditioning. They're praying and they're expecting something, but they don't know what. They don't know what the Holy Ghost is at this point. They've never really experienced the Holy Spirit. They don't know what's going on happen. But they're hanging around. They're praying. They're doing their best not to stink too bad. It's kind of miserable up there. It's an upper room. It's hot. But they're praying. They're trying to get a hold of God. And, and I don't know who does it first. Maybe it's Maybe it's John. John gets up and he says, folks, he says, I need to ask you for forgiveness. You see, um, I, was, I was involved with when my mother asked if I could sit on either the right or the left hand of, of Christ when he came into his kingdom. And I've, I've been... I've, I've, I've wanted position and power for myself. And I realize that it's wrong. I never understood Jesus' teaching. He kept telling us to quit seeking those things. He says, but I'm coming to realize that I was putting myself before you. And I just want you all to know I'm sorry. And James stands up and he puts his arm around his brother. He says, he's not the only one. I was too. I was involved in it. He says there's a reason that we've been called the sons of thunder. Our tempers have gotten us in trouble and we've, we've been selfish and clutching. And, and we're, I want to just join my brother and say I'm sorry. And hugs go around and they, 
the two of them sit down, and maybe Peter gets up. Maybe Peter says, you know, he says, I want to say I'm sorry. He said, I've always been the first one to speak and always slow to think. He said, I said, I said that everyone else would forsake Christ. I said you all would be forsakers of Christ, and I wouldn't. I thought I was better than you. I thought I was better than you. But I see now I'm not. I see now I'm not. Brothers and sisters, I, I just want you to know I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, for my quick tongue, and I'm sorry for, for thinking I was better than you all. Maybe Thomas gets up. Did you know, all of you told me Jesus was alive and I wouldn't believe you. I called all of you liars and not so many words. I wouldn't believe you. Even, it was, it was, even though it was so many of you had seen Jesus and, and I didn't believe you and I, and I didn't show you the respect that you deserved. I didn't show you the love that you deserved. I, I was so caught up in my own grief and, my, and myself and my problems that, that I didn't take into account how I was behaving towards you and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Down the line it went. Different ones begin to stand up and say, you know what I've done wrong to you? I haven't shown the love of Christ to you. I've not been the servant Christ taught us to be. And I want you to know I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And once they got all that stuff dealt with, once they got all the relationships between each other settled, once all the apologies had been made and all the hugs and all the tears and, and all the I forgive you's had been spoken, when they all got into the place of unity in one accord. Folks, unity is not an agreement with everything. Unity is about having nothing between. Sanctified people can disagree. Paul and Barnabas would disagree hotly over John Mark. Sanctified people can disagree, but there's nothing between. And after they gotten all those things settled, all their I'm sorry's and all their forgivenesses all taken care of, and they got in where there was nothing between any of them in the 120, that's when the Holy Spirit could fall. They couldn't fall in love with God until they fell in love with each other. And as long as we're going to harbor bitterness, as long as we're going to harbor unforgiveness, as long as we're going to harbor resentment, as long as we're going to refuse to apologize for our part, and you say, it wasn't my fault, it was 100% their fault, it might be, but it's your fault because you haven't gone to them and tried to reconcile. Jesus said, if you're at, about ready to sacrifice and, and you remember you've, that you've got something against your brother, leave your sacrifice there. Leave the, leave the altar and go find your brother and get it taken care of because you can't love God until you love your neighbor. This is what Pentecost is. 
It's not about our dress standard I believe in. It's not about our outward showmanship. It's about falling in love with each other and in love with God. And do you know what happens? One of the things we focus on is, is our sinlessness afterwards. Christian perfection, is, as John Wesley said. But do you know what happens? When you fall in love with someone, you don't want to hurt them. Folks, I can tell you I have no desire to punch my wife. I have no desire to do so. She can, she can be miserable. She can be ornery. She can do whatever she wants. Satan could even come up and whisper in my ear and tempt me and say, why don't you just whack her a good one? But you know there's, the love that's in my heart makes it impossible. And this is why I believe that holiness is seeking more love. You can't sin, not because you don't have the ability, not because you don't have your will still, but because you're so in love, it, it just seems to not even make sense. It, it's, a, it's the opposite of who you are. You become so in love with other people. Listen, folks, the evidence of holiness is the fruit of the Spirit. And as you go through them, what are they? They're relational. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's kindness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. These are relational. You can't love God until you love people. And if you love God, He'll put a love of people in you. The two come together. And whenever we allow Satan to weave the thinnest veil as though a spider or a spider web between us and someone else or between us and God, folks, we're in danger. Songwriter said, nothing between my soul and the Savior. But it's more than that. It's nothing between my soul and Doyle. It's nothing between my soul and Sean. It's nothing between my soul and Brother Gary. It's nothing between me and uh, Cameron. That's what holiness is. Now, can Cameron be mad at me? Sure. Can Cameron be, uh, not forgive me? Sure. But there's nothing between me and him. It's on, it's on his end. I've done all that I can do. What it, folks, the Hebrew writer tells us that follow peace with all men and holiness. Why does he put them together? Because that's what they are. They are together. Following peace with all men and holiness is the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the two sides of the same coin. And the question for us to this morning is, is this holiness that we've professed? Is this the holiness that we've lived? Is this the holiness that we teach and sing? Is this the holiness that we're willing to die for? Is this the holiness that keeps this do the doors of our church open? Is it the holiness of Pentecost that, we're, that we are all about? Or have we made it something else? Has Satan clouded our mind and confused us 
and we've claimed something that isn't true? Has it become so clouded that we've turned holiness into something else, uh, something that we can control and manage? Listen, Richard Foster says that this, that, that holiness, holiness is about obedience in joy and not in grit. It's not in willing yourself to do the right thing. It's doing it out of love and joy. And if you've got to grit your teeth to do the right thing, if you've got to grit your teeth and will yourself to do what God wants you to do, if you've got to grit your teeth to love your neighbor, folks, you're missing it. God has something better. You need to get in an upper room somewhere. You may have to find that brother or that sister or that neighbor that you've been apathetic or hated or ignored. But this, this is what God promised all the way back in Joel. It's what turned Peter from a coward into a man who can stand in front of a thousand and preach boldly. And do you know what happened? When the church gets the Holy Spirit, it grows. It says, and they added to the church daily. I'm not saying we're going to add to the church daily, but I truly believe that the world cannot resist, cannot resist a church that has the Holy Spirit where love and joy are present. I don't believe the world can resist that. And I don't believe for a moment that we have to walk in confusion over what holiness is. But we're going to sing it, preach it, and live it. Holiness unto the Lord now and forever. Let's stand. Amen. Brother West, please dismiss us in prayer.